Welcome to the Midlife Masculine Podcast. My name is Dhruv Sethi and join me on this journey of becoming an objective, independent, self-sovereign thinker and doer. The masculine maintains structure in our families and society even when it's underappreciated. This always begins with the acquisition of knowledge, ancient or modern, obscure or mainstream. Regardless, we will acquire knowledge together on this show. Find us on mlmpod.info and all major podcast platforms. Please like, share, subscribe and hit the bell. Welcome to another episode of the Midlife Masculine Podcast. In today's episode, we aim to provide men with foundational knowledge on Bitcoin. Generally speaking as men, we are expected to be able providers, take care of the household finances and be resourceful. But how do we do that when the financial system is crumbling in front of us with high joblessness and rampant inflation, all due to government and central bank policies? The general public suffers due to their decisions at the end of the day. Well, Bitcoin offers an entirely different financial system or paradigm, if you like, to what the governments and central banks are currently running. We will use this episode as a primer to Bitcoin. If listeners want me to dig deeper into any topic, then let me know in the comments and we can have an additional and more dedicated episode. Joined with me today is our guest, Roger Davis, who's an internet consultant, Bitcoin enthusiast and founder of Bitcoin Nottingham Meetup Group. Welcome, Roger. Good morning. Good morning. How's uh, sunny Greece? Very sunny, very hot, lovely. You know, that's what we came for. So uh, we don't complain about having to put the aircon on every now and then. I'm glad. I'm glad. I wish I could say the same about London. But uh, we don't know when the summer came, when it went. It's sort of windy, rainy, cloudy. It comes and goes. So a bit jealous of you, Roger. <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things that you can engineer into your life if it's important to you. And it was to me. And so here I am for uh, as much of the year as I can manage to spend out here. So uh, well done. Well done. Well, Roger, let's kick off. And the first question, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but what is Bitcoin? Who owns it and who controls it? Yeah, it's the biggest question of of our time at the moment. So let's see, let's keep it as simple as possible and say Bitcoin is money. That's the simplest way to approach it. Obviously, you can then start peeling back the layers and looking into what makes up Bitcoin and how it's money. But I find that it's simplest if you start with that sort of premise, because there's so many things in the world that we don't actually understand money is one of them. And so if you start there, well, Bitcoin is money or Bitcoin is the new money. Bitcoin is digital money, the same way we've got digital music, digital photographs, digital videos. Bitcoin is is essentially the continuation of that evolution into digital money. So who owns it and controls it, again, is a really good question because that's something that makes Bitcoin so unique in that nobody owns it and really nobody controls it so how can <laughs> how can that be so it, it basically it would be a, a good point for me to give some of the background to bitcoin to help to understand how that's possible so shall i go into that yeah before you go into that you mentioned digital so is there anything physical about it well no 
so you don't have a physical coin or a physical note, but you do have a key, which is not like a key for your front door. It's a, a string of letters and numbers, which makes up the key. And that's about as close as you get to having anything physical. And the same way if you, you know, lose your key to your front door, if you lose your Bitcoin key, you know, that is something that you can physically lose, which would prevent you from getting access to the lock, if you like, that that key unlocks. But it is purely digital in that there is no, no physical component to it like a coin, which is always a bit of a sticking block for a lot of people. But, uh, you know, if you think about your bank account and the money that's in there, you know, that's not really physical. It's not really there. It's just numbers on a, uh, you know, on a database, on a spreadsheet, unless you decide to withdraw some into cash notes uh, and things like email and uh, music, digital music, digital video, they have no physical counterpart either. Mm. So we are already used to, to working with things in this way, but because you know, money is so deeply ingrained in our psyche and society as being pound notes and or, or, or notes and, and coins, then it is a bit of a, a leap sometimes to get to Bitcoin and having no, no physical part. Okay, I'll let you uh, go ahead with the background. <laughs> well, the Bitcoin story is, is something that is really interesting, actually. Uh, I don't know if it's just because I'm a super nerd that I find it really interesting, but it's something that we all need to learn. And it starts with the name Satoshi Nakamoto. And this is a, a pseudonym of a person or persons unknown that published what's called the Bitcoin white paper. So this is kind of the concept of Bitcoin. And so Satoshi basically created this new money or as, as it's, you know, people could go and read the, the white paper. It's widely available on the internet and it's titled Peer to Peer digital cash network and they sort of created this and donated it to the world in a way without taking any benefit from it and then after a year they sort of withdrew from the world and said on a post in a, in a forum a, a bitcoin forum that they're moving on to other things and, and bitcoin is in good hands and that was the last time anybody ever heard from um, the, the personal whoever is um, going under the name of Satoshi Nakamoto. So that's the first thing that you learn uh, when you're coming across Bitcoin. And then obviously the white paper lays out how it all works. And I mean, probably we don't really want to delve too far into that because, you know, you could spend hours and hours talking about that, but it's relevant to who owns and controls it. And when the first version of the software was published, which is free and open source software, that kind of set in stone, if you like, the way that Bitcoin have to work. So even though the software itself has been has evolved and, and been updated, the basic underlying sort of mechanics of it can't be changed. Because if you were to do that, all that would happen is anybody running the different software would end up creating a separate network and a separate coin, which of course wouldn't have the same values and support that, that Bitcoin has. So, I mean, it's, it, you know, it really is a can of worms and I've just opened that perhaps for a few people. Where do you want to go next? <laughs> yeah. So, so just briefly, so what you're saying is anybody can go on and create another version of Bitcoin, but for 
that to be successful, they'll essentially have to go on and resell it as a brand new coin and they wouldn't be able to sell it as the existing Bitcoin. Yeah, so it, it's one of the, the features of the way Bitcoin software works and it's how it maintains its structure over time. So, for example, one of the specifics of Bitcoin is that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin ever created. And, you know, again, we can, we can expand on how that, that happens. But say, for example, somebody had a bright idea one day and said, oh, look, let's change it to 42 million. And I've, well, if, you know, any Bitcoin that I'm holding, I'm, I'm able to make more. Then what would happen is that entry in the software would sort of cause a, a conflict, if you like, with all of the other versions of the software that's running that says 21 million is the maximum supply. And so, therefore, the software wouldn't allow this new variable, if you like, into the, the network. And there are things in this called uh, forking, you know, so it would fork itself off into another network, which wouldn't be able to interact with the normal Bitcoin network with these set parameters like 21 million. Okay. Um, so, so each copy of the software that everybody who wants to run the software runs they're all kind of checking with each other to make sure that the consensus if you like is still correct and if it's not then this is how people would try and attack the network by making changes to it and they just get rejected as being oh you know that's like a, a square peg trying to go in a round hole for example okay yeah a lot of things to unpack there let's take things up one at a time here so bitcoin is essentially its own network and you mentioned software so what is the software? And uh, yeah, can you explain that a bit more? So the software is what makes up the basis of Bitcoin. And uh, rather than, you know, I mean, obviously I'm simplifying all of this down. And, and also should, I should just add the caveat, this is my own understanding of it. And I could well be wrong. <laughs> but I've been learning Bitcoin since 2016. So I think I've got quite a good grasp on it. But, you know, you, you do learn things all the time. But so, yeah, you take the software and anybody who wants to run that can run it. And there are sort of different instances of running the software. And they are a full node and a miner. So if you just stick with those two concepts to begin with, anybody can be either. But it depends on how you want to run the software as to what investment you'll need to make into the, the machine that you run it on. Obviously, the Bitcoin miners, which we should talk about in a while, they need to invest a lot more money into specific types of devices and buy a lot of electricity to run their version. But anybody could run a full node, like on a laptop or you know, even on a, a Raspberry Pi device, you know, one of these little mini computers. Yeah. And what that does is it, it basically downloads into the software every single transaction that's ever happened on the Bitcoin network. And this is how it achieves consensus in saying that the balance that is in your Bitcoin account is agreed by all of the, the nodes on the network. And it does this by encrypting everything into an algorithm down to, if you like, what can we call a checksum, so like a single number. A single number can represent the entire state of all of the accounts on the Bitcoin network. And so if one sort of bad actor, if you like, was trying to say that an account has got a balance that's different from what all of the other copies of the software say, then that would stick out like a, a sore thumb, as it were, 
because the entire checksum number would be different, even if the difference was only, say, one penny or one cent different balance in an account. And so essentially, it means that the entire Bitcoin network gets audited by every single person that runs the software. And every 10 minutes, a new entry gets added to the Bitcoin network to sort of confirm all the movements of the coins between the different accounts. And so you could say every 10 minutes, the entire network is being audited. So that's really part of its uh, huge power there. You know, it's very difficult to audit large networks and things. So the Bitcoin network is essentially maintained, its integrity is maintained by what you call miners and nodes. They maintain nodes. Could you very briefly explain what a miner is and what a node is? Yeah, so a full node, I'd say, has a copy of all the transactions ever happened on the network. And it also forwards transactions waiting to be processed. And then the transactions waiting to be processed are collected in what's called the mempool. And, you know, you can go and look on the internet, some great visualizations for this, where you can see all the transactions coming in. And this is what the miners do is they, well, one miner will win the right to create the next transaction in the Bitcoin network. So this is called a block. And in this block will be, if I've sent you some coins or some value, it will be represented in that, in that next block, hopefully. And when the miner who wins the right to create the next block has done that, they will then get rewarded by the network. You know, so there is no person giving out the rewards to the software in, in the network that will reward that miner with new Bitcoins as a payment for performing the work. And so this is how the new Bitcoins come into existence. This is how they are minted, if you like. And this is one of the key points to understand. So then if you unpack that a little bit more, how do the the miners win the right to create the next block? And this is where all the energy is used. And uh, what they're basically doing is they're kind of guessing a random number, if you like. So they take scoop a load of transactions out of the mempool waiting to be processed. And then they add like a random number to that and come up with this string, this checksum. And if that checksum is deemed to be complicated enough, then they're the ones that win the right to uh, enter those transactions into the network. So this is like my very simplified way of explaining it without saying too many of the colloquialisms or acronyms that obviously there are lots of them. So I'm purposely avoiding using some of the uh, more complex terms because we're trying to sort of introduce this to people at a... Let's keep it high level. And in terms of transparency, all the transactions are available for anybody to view. They are on the Bitcoin network, but of course, you don't know who they are. Um, So if I send some coins or value to your account, our accounts are just shown using the public key, which is a, a string of letters and numbers. So unless you're able to tag that account through some other sort of real world identification, like, for example, some of the exchanges and some famous people, their, their accounts are, are known. And so they've been tagged. But there's no, uh, you know, it's one of the key facts actually about Bitcoin that we should always make sure we, we cover is that to create a Bitcoin account, don't have to provide any personal information whatsoever. You don't 
have to provide your email address, you don't have to provide a mobile phone number, and you don't even, you know, transactions aren't even linked to the IP address of your device on, on the internet. So this does get a bit confusing because, of course, if you join an exchange to buy your Bitcoin, they have to do this identity verification sort of stuff. But that's a requirement for them operating as a company involved in money. It's not a requirement of Bitcoin. Okay. And the full transaction history, as far as transparency is concerned, where can I or anybody go and look at them? Great question. And uh, that introduces another key word. And the word is a block explorer. And so these are websites that pretty much anybody could create. Anyone who's got a bit of technical know-how, you can create a website that queries the Bitcoin network and you provide a little search box where people could type in either an account name or a transaction ID, and uh, it will go off and look it up and, and give you the, the, the transaction back in plain text. And that will tell you the time and the date of the transaction. It will tell you the inputs and outputs, which again is something that's too complicated to talk about at the moment. But And it will tell you the fees and the amount of the transaction. So that's all publicly accessible through any one of the, the many block explorers that are out there. Okay, so all transactions are available for anybody to view, which is very different to how the governments and central banks work. We have no idea where the money oh, goes, absolutely. what policies you know, they're implementing. I almost want to say, don't get me started, but maybe you want to. <laughs> but yes, by introducing Bitcoin as this base layer of truth and transparency, it could and will, I believe, completely transform the way that governance is managed. Why should anybody have a monopoly on money? Yeah, so Bitcoin hopefully will solve that soon. You mentioned 21 million, so there'll only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. So what is the significance of that? Well, there's all sorts of interesting ideas around why the number 21 million was devised, but I believe it's actually because of the maths. And you know, there's a lot of maths in Bitcoin and how it works, which is why it's so dependable because, you know, math two plus two is always four. So we probably have to introduce another keyword here, which is the halving. Okay. So every four years, the rewards that get paid to the Bitcoin miners, it halves. And so eventually once you've halved this all the way down to near nothing, then that's where you end up with the, the 21 million. So just to expand on that a little bit, the mining reward that goes to the company that writes, you know, or the pool or the miner that wrote the next block, started out as 50 Bitcoin. And mm. so if you can imagine at the very beginning when Satoshi ran the software for the first time on, on his laptop, and this is in... Um, 3rd of January 2009, which is an auspicious date for Bitcoin. He was just running it on his own. And so he was getting these 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes and accumulated over a million Bitcoin in his wallets before he stopped mining. Because at some point, somebody else then ran the software and somebody else ran the software. And eventually, there was enough people running it that he could turn his off and just let it, let it carry on. Mm. And so these mining rewards is actually a subsidy, if you like, to bootstrap the network to get it going. 
because of course you've got fees as well within the Bitcoin transaction. There, there is a small fee, but at the beginning that fee would, in monetary terms, would be so small it wouldn't give the miners enough return on their investment in the equipment and the electricity, etc. So this this subsidy is what the mining reward actually is. So right now, to 50 Bitcoin, then four years later, 25 Bitcoin, 12 and a half, etc. Now we're at 6.25 Bitcoin block rewards every 10 minutes. And then in April next year, around about April next year, we'll have another halving. So that will go down to three. And then four years after that, it'll be one something. And this is really part of the magic of Bitcoin because the, the issuance schedule is predetermined in advance, unlike current monetary system where they have a meeting and decide how much more money they're going to print off. You know, the Bitcoin issuance is, is already known in advance. And so the halvings every roughly every four years. Bitcoin brings together spirituality, energy, capitalism, money, everything yeah. into one. So there's so Physics, much economics, politics, exactly. You just you know, it really is an all-encompassing subject because, of course, money affects everybody. You know, there isn't a single person in the entire world that doesn't think about money and doesn't need money or hasn't heard of money or doesn't use money or some kind of barter. You know, even if you're in some very remote parts of the world where they don't use money, you know, they're still trading things for things. So there'll only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Yeah. Can I go somewhere? Where, where can I go to make sure that there'll be no more than 21 million Bitcoin ever? Oh, I see. Well, that's uh, that's all part of the uh, all part of the code of the software mm-hmm. that is running on you know full nodes or or mining machines, and this code is publicly available. And there's actually a website called GitHub.com, which programmers and developers the world over use for hosting their code. And indeed, you can go there and and just download the Bitcoin code and you can see if you understand these things beyond me. Yeah. And that finite amount of Bitcoin, that is important because it keeps the value of Bitcoin deflationary or at least prevents it from getting inflated, which is very different to our current monetary system where everything is getting expensive. Yeah, well, it avoids it from being debased or um, diluted, yeah. So, I mean, the way I like to think about this is, you know, if you had, say, like a, a glass of black currant juice, you know, Ribena being the one that we always wanted to have when we were kids, but mum would never let us have because it's so expensive. <laughs> yeah. If you had a glass of Ribena and you drank a bit and then you poured water in and you kept drinking a bit and pouring water in, eventually it's not going to be black currant juice. It's just going to be water that's got a very faint sort of taste and color of, of black currant. And this is essentially what's happening to the money supply. You know, the, the value that was in there has been diluted so much through money printing that it has very little true value left in it. And obviously, with the way that Bitcoin works, the energy expenditure is, can't be faked. Yeah, You can't counterfeit energy. If you're a government, you can counterfeit money and it's called quantitative easing and it's not illegal. But if we all did it, it would be considered illegal just printing out money. So because Bitcoin has these fixed inputs that are based on energy and the laws of physics, 
nobody can create more Bitcoin outside of the software. Uh, and that's what keeps its value. Yeah, Because people are often, you hear them saying, oh, Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. Well, it does. You know, it's like, if that's the case, go make some and, and send them to me and I'll give you $30,000 for each one you can make. Because you yeah. can't. You cannot make a Bitcoin without investing in the mining rigs and the, the power that's required to engage in the, the mining action. Yeah. I liked your uh, Ribena juice analogy. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to borrow that off you. By all means, I'd be delighted if I heard that somewhere come back at me. <laughs> yeah. This is a question. You don't have to answer this, but this is just something I've always asked myself. When they can create money out of thin air, why do I need to pay tax? This is a oh, question yeah. for another day. Uh, well, I've asked that question myself as well. And apparently it's so that they can take cash out of circulation. But yeah, it's all part of the smoke and mirrors that is taxation. But that's probably the easiest answer without having me going on about it for the next hour. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, <laughs> for, that's for another day. So the next segment, I want to compare Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies. So Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. Then we've got Ethereum, Solana, Cardano, all of the others, maybe 20,000 odd other cryptocurrencies. How does a Bitcoin compare to the rest of them just at a high level? We must start by saying there is no second best, uh, which is one of the uh, Bitcoin uh, phrases and coined by Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy, which is one of the companies that public companies that holds uh, a lot of Bitcoin, about 150,000 Bitcoin they have now. So yeah, all all of the other cryptocurrencies, because again, we kind of say Bitcoin is not crypto. You know, you've got Bitcoin, and then everything else is the cryptos, and all roads lead to Bitcoin in my experience, and and that's something that I'd love everybody to to take away from this. If you're going to learn about something. Learn about Bitcoin. Just forget all of the rest for now. Don't be seduced by the sick gains, you know, in air quotes that they promise and the yield. And just ignore all of that until you understand Bitcoin. If you get to the point where you understand Bitcoin perhaps as, as well as we do, I do, and you've been in, in the space for, for years and you, you're holding a good amount of Bitcoin, and you, if you want to go off and try and experiment with trading altcoins or holding altcoins to try and make more Bitcoin, then you might be experienced enough to be able to navigate that, that world. But it, it is a minefield. And so that would be my, my first recommendation is just ignore it all. And the main difference really is, is Satoshi Nakamoto, because every other crypto or altcoin or they have other names, but we won't go there. You know, it's been created by somebody that is probably still around or there's a team behind it or there's a venture capital firm behind it. And so Bitcoin is unique in the way that it, it came into the world and, and it could never be reproduced uh, the same way you can't reinvent the wheel. It's a physical impossibility to reinvent the wheel. You can try and copy it. You could try and make it better, but we all know the round shape is the best shape for a wheel. And so there's no point in trying to reinvent the wheel. Just use the wheel. Use the wheel that's already there. That's the summary. Yeah. So for Bitcoin, you have to buy the equipment. You have to expend energy to be able to get some Bitcoin out. Whereas the other altcoins, it is whoever owns the altcoin can print as many of their respective tokens as possible. So it's inflationary in essence, whereas Bitcoin is not. 
in that sense. I think that's a key takeaway for listeners that if you want to get into the world of crypto, if you want to make money, uh, Bitcoin is the proper starting point. And uh, it might take you down the altcoin route, but uh, you should learn Bitcoin because it is the safest and most reliable compared to the others. The others are highly manipulatable. So Bitcoin, one key takeaway is buy some Bitcoin, hold it, and uh, your descendants will thank you. So on that very, at a high level, where can people buy Bitcoin safely, especially as a lot of exchanges have gone bust or are into administration like FTX, BlockFi, Celsius? What's the safest way to buy it and store it? Yeah, so there's a number of exchanges which, you know, are not, problematic and even if an exchange is dubious or not running their company legitimately or properly it isn't necessarily an issue for you if you recognize that when your bitcoin is is on an exchange it's at risk of being lost should that company suddenly decide that it's got to shut down or it, it gets shut down and you know they're called an exchange for a reason, because you should only use them to exchange between different currencies. So in our case, probably we're talking pounds and pence into Bitcoin. So you could sign up for any any exchange account and go through their process of identity verification and stuff, which they have to do, you know, because of the, the laws of the land, trying to prevent people from laundering money, etc. But then once you've got your Bitcoin, the very first thing you should do then is withdraw it from the exchange onto a key that you control and that's a physical key a heart is that well, what you're this, is, this is the um you know the required learning really is is what makes up a bitcoin key is is actually a, a seed phrase of 12 words mm. or 24 words but let's just say 12 words and these 12 words are drawn from a, a ball of words that are all known in advance and jumbled up and then what they do is they convert that into the binary value of those words and that basically is your is your key so anybody who has the seed phrase for a bitcoin account has ultimate control over the value in that account and could send it to another account you know you you sign a transaction digitally with this key and so, you know, there's a whole area of learning there around how to safely store your keys and, and all that kind of thing, which would be topic for another day. But to protect yourself from any exchanges becoming insolvent on you, always withdraw your Bitcoin from an exchange as soon as you've acquired it. Yeah. So the key takeaway is you can buy the Bitcoin on an exchange, but as soon as you do, take custody of it by taking it off the exchange. And as we reach the end of the episode, I have to ask you this. When's the next Bitcoin bull run and what price or what value do you see in the foreseeable future? Ah, the ultimate question. Yeah. Well, I think the bull run started actually, literally a few days ago. Various, uh, you know, you can get various charts and graphs and indicators. Uh, all sorts of companies make all sorts of graphs because it's quite interesting being able to access the information publicly. You can write your own program to graph it all, and people have done. So there's lots of indicators that turned bullish over the last few days, and it's on the up, perhaps. 
mainly because of the you know the large financial institutions that have uh, submitted applications to trade Bitcoin on the stock exchange. So uh, you know, out of the top ten financial management companies in the world, I think the top seven have all submitted applications. So you know, that's a a massive signal, and and also we're seeing the the messaging, the narrative in the mainstream media is literally flipped overnight from Bitcoin is for terrorists laundering money to mm. oh Bitcoin's going to help stabilise the grid and terrorists have moved beyond Bitcoin and all of this changed because of course you know these companies do have a massive influence in the the mainstream media's narratives. So it's very interesting to see how. Nothing's changed in Bitcoin in the last few days, yet the mainstream media narrative has done a complete 180. So, yeah, you know, the, the guy, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, $10 trillion of assets under management on telly the other night saying Bitcoin is an international asset. So, you know, if that's not a, a signal that we could be about, the bull run could be starting, then uh, I don't know what it is, really. Unless, of course, you go the conspiracy theory route, which is they're trying to manipulate the price and, and everybody through the media. But we'll just have to see how that plays out. And as far as pricing goes, well, I've watched and heard all sorts of really good descriptions or thesis on where the price might go. And $12 million, $30 million per Bitcoin, quite possibly. You know, I could actually see that happening. But it would mean, of course, that $1 million wouldn't be able to buy you nearly as much as uh, we think it can buy us today. So sort of measuring it in dollars is almost confusing as well. So the sooner we get to the Bitcoin standard where we measure the value and the cost and price of things in Bitcoin rather than in dollars, the, the better. But I would just sort of guess that at the top of this bull run, we could be something like $400,000 even as high as that. And then it will perhaps crash back down to like $50,000. You know, you could even see that happen. And, and of course, at that point, everyone will be going, oh, Bitcoin's dead again. <laughs> and it start the process of going through the next halving cycle and, and the next peak and the next trough. And perhaps over the next 10, 20, 30 years, that will all kind of equal itself out and the you know the, the volatility will will be reduced but yeah i'd say 400 maybe four hundred eighty thousand dollars at the top of this run wouldn't be a surprise to me so what what is your rationale for 400 480k well just because i understand the basics of bitcoin and the, li the limited supply and the digital scarcity and you know the fact that the more you look into money, because to understand Bitcoin, you've got to understand money. And I'm ashamed to say that I didn't really understand money when I started getting into Bitcoin. And that's why you go down the rabbit hole. And the further down it you go, the more you realize the existing financial systems are corrupt. They're, they're essentially stealing from all of us every day. And so, you know, all of these facts and realities will become apparent to everybody at some point in the same way that, you know, we all agree night follows day and hot is hot and cold is cold, you know, and color and time, you know, we all agree on these things globally, otherwise it would, would cause a problem. And Bitcoin is going to be something that we will all agree on at some point, I think. And that's, you know, what its underlying principles are what increases its value. 
I have two academic degrees from top universities. One of them was a business degree from a very prestigious university here in London. And I have a professional accounting qualification and I trained with one of the big four accountancy firms here in London. But in spite of all that, nobody taught me anything about money. I didn't understand money until I bought some Bitcoin and had some skin in the game. And in buying that Bitcoin, being aware of the risks, that made me learn more and more about money. I'm still learning and I'm, I'm sure most people are, but that is really what changed. So none of the degrees, none of the professional qualifications did that to me, but Bitcoin did. If you've got the majority of your wealth in a Bitcoin account, you can be anywhere in the world with that that Bitcoin account sort of attached to you, as long as you, you've got access to that account and that seed phrase. And so with all the things that are going on in the world at the moment, talking about a friend of mine with property in Paris, for example, saying to her, why don't you sell that? And, you know, because she's not actually living in Paris, she's got this, you know, she's living here with me in Greece. And uh, why don't you sell that, convert it into Bitcoin? Because, you know, if things really start going terrible in Paris, then that, that real estate value is going to change and it would be hard to sell that. Or even if you need to move in a hurry for not a reason that's related to where the property is, you know, if you've got money invested in real estate, it's linked to that region. And as we all know, selling a property is not a, a quick process. But if you've got all of your wealth in your stored wealth in Bitcoin, you could relocate to anywhere in the world and still have access to that. Uh, and that's you know really, really important. They talk about a brain wallet, even if you take that to its ultimate conclusion and you were able to have your twelve word seed phrase stored in your brain, then all of your wealth is in your brain. It's a brain wallet. And so you could be walking around with millions and billions of dollars just in your brain. And you could go from from Europe to America to England and you know, or any restrictions that might be there on the amount of physical cash that you could bring in would be irrelevant because it's all in your head. So as we reach the end of this episode, very quickly, are there any bite-sized or easy books that you can recommend listeners read? Oh, so many, so many. If you could pick a couple. Just start. Uh, I mean, I was thinking about this actually, because if you're listening to this now, then that means that you've already brought into the world where podcasts and audio is, is a thing for you. And all of these books, great books about Bitcoin, are available on Audible, which is uh, you know an Amazon company. And if you've got an Amazon account, you could just go click, click, and you can be listening to one of the books, say, uh, Bitcoin, everything divided by 21 million. And this is by a chap called Knut Svanholm, if I've pronounced his name correctly. This is such a brilliant book. And this is, I mean, I'm, I've moved on to a couple of other books since then, but I learned so much from this book, reading it or listening to it just a few weeks ago. That you know, I was kind of like well, I thought I knew what Bitcoin was until I read this book. So Audible, Bitcoin books. Once you've bought one of them, then obviously all the algorithms start going. Oh, you might be interested in this. You might be interested in this, and they'll recommend them to you and just start consuming them. If you're listening to this in the car, you know, put the audio books in your car and when you're on the train, etc. Any chance you get to drown out the mother-in-law or whatever, stick the earbuds in and put a, a Bitcoin book on. The Bitcoin Standard by Saifedean Amois, 
again, if I pronounced his name right, a brilliant book as well. So you can start with those two. And from there, they'll be good enough for seed books, if you like, for the algorithm start suggesting all, all of the other books to you. And obviously, if you get on Twitter, follow me on, on Twitter, BTC Nottingham. Uh, I'm always retweeting Bitcoin stuff and quite a lot of that includes includes books. So, um, yeah, lots okay. of really good books out there. But uh, yeah, Bitcoin, everything divided by 21 million by Knutz van Home and Bitcoin Standard by Seyfedeen Amus. Definitely two good books to start with. Yeah, and I'll link that in the description below. So what's uh, next for you and where can people find you? You mentioned Twitter earlier. Yeah, uh, follow me on Twitter and everything that I'm doing with Bitcoin starts at bitcoinnottingham.org and we run uh, monthly Bitcoin meetups where you can come along in person. I do spend a fair amount of time out of the country and so other volunteers within the group run their meetups when, when I'm not there. And the next one, 25th of July, should be exciting at the Carlton Football Club where Chris is running that for us and they actually now accept Bitcoin. So you'll be able to for beers, drinks, nibbles, whatever on the night using Bitcoin and uh, actually Bitcoin Lightning, which is the whole next thing for people to start learning about <laughs> once they've got into Bitcoin and this is how you can make instant payments. Because obviously, if you, we talked about 10 minutes earlier, yeah. you know, 10 minute block times and stuff. But you wouldn't want to be waiting at the till for 10 minutes. So Bitcoin Lightning enables that to be instant and very uh, cheap. So yeah, we're really excited about the next meetup because it's the first one where the venue actually accepts Bitcoin. And, you know, collectively, the meetup group has sort of enabled that to happen by pitching this venue. So yeah, people should definitely seek out their local Bitcoin meetup group. And if there isn't one in your area, then start one. Uh, because all you need to do is post and say, I'm going to be at this place at this time, come along and talk to us about Bitcoin. And, and you'll be amazed at, at what happens. I'm always in awe at the people that come and the conversations that happen. So if anybody wants to know anything more about any of that, then, then start off at bitcoinnottium.org. Uh, and or go to your your own local meetup if you're not in or around Nottingham. Cool. Well, Roger, it's been very insightful and thanks for all the knowledge that you've imparted on uh, me and our listeners. Well, that marks the end of the episode. Thanks once again, uh, Roger, and I hope to see you very soon in one of the Bitcoin Nottingham meetups. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Midlife Masculine Podcast. Find us on mlmpod.info and all major podcast platforms. Please like, share, subscribe and hit the bell.